This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Day. And I am Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care, human or pet. Because mm. the topic of our episode today is, I'm very, very excited for this, is Pedicare for all. That's not pedicures for all. That's pedicare for all. Um, <laughs> and any regular listeners of the podcast will not be surprised to hear that Gen Xers and millennials are going into debt for healthcare. But what if we told you that this time it's for their pets? Uh, more Americans are spending more money on healthcare for their beloved pets, which means, of course, private insurance companies are getting in on the action and trying to cash in on it. And today we will be digging into the wild world of pet insurance and what Pedicare for all could mean for our four-legged friends or our zero-legged friends or our more than four-legged friends. I'm sure you see them all, uh, Chris. <laughs> so do you want to introduce our guest today, Jillian? Oh, of course I do. So we have here Chris Dupuis, who is a vet and also the owner of Wheatland Animal Hospital in a very pleasant sounding place, Neighborville, <laughs> Illinois. Thank you so much for being with us, Chris. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Uh, we also have some really important guests for today. And honestly, I'd be lying if I said that the entire point of this podcast episode wasn't <laughs> to get our pets on air. But so I wanted to just take a second to introduce Coretta Scott Cat, social justice Aww. kitty. If Coretta she sits better, in on all of our staff meetings. She does sit in on all of our staff meetings. Coretta is uninsured and living in Corpus Christi, Texas. Well, that's a dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> and then, Ben, did you want to introduce someone? I do. This is uh, Coda. My dog is not pick upable, so I'm going to have to do some uh, camera magic here. But he's Aww. curled up in a ball, napping on the guest bed across from me. So, where he is frequently. These are our office managers. All right. So that's enough looking at cute pets. <laughs> Let's get into it. <laughs> um, so I wanted to just start off by Chris asking you a little bit more about, you know, uh, why, uh, why you decided to become a vet. And um, if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, Wheatland Animal Hospital. Sure. Yeah, no problem. So actually, my dad started the clinic 32 years ago. So my dad was a practicing vet for years. So I always knew I loved animals. I grew up with cats. And I loved them. So I always knew I wanted to, 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 to work with them. So yeah, pretty typical story. Our clinic is, uh, we, we see dogs and cats. Used to do a bunch of wildlife work, but the guy that did the wild, wildlife moved down to Florida. So dogs and cats right now. And yeah, we, we, we see mostly families that uh, bring their dogs and cats into us. Awesome. So no zero-legged friends for you. We have no zero-legged friends. Uh, sometimes we have three-legged friends, but mostly right? four-legged oh, friends. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, they all got legs though. I was going to say some more about legs, but I think that's fine. Yeah. Um. <laughs> You've obviously been in the business of you know keeping pets healthy for a while now. Um, can we just can you start off talking a little bit about? Are there any trends that you're kind of seeing in terms of just how widespread pet ownership is? 
how much pet owners are willing to spend, just like their attitudes yeah. towards pets in general. Is that changing? For sure. You know, we have a lot of uh, clients from previous years that are still, they're really, really wonderful, but it is true that some of the younger people are a bit more willing to spend discretionary income on mm -hmm. the pets. It sounds like this year's survey, some are willing to go to debt on the pets. There's, we saw a little bit of an uptick during COVID of, of pets coming in our doors here. So yeah. yeah, there does seem to be a bit more willingness to spend, not just on medical care, but on just, on just the cost of the animal themselves yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I am really interested in the generational aspect of this, right? So I started doing some research and I found out that, okay, so first of all, 47% of pet owners overall, right, um, have gone into debt for their pets, which is kind of a wild statistic. And then it turns out, right, that this is actually highly generational and that baby boomers are actually less likely to go into debt for their pets than Gen Xers and millennials. And Gen Xers are by far the people who are willing to go into debt for their pet, the most willing to go into debt for their pets with 66% of Gen Xers in debt for their pets. So here's my real question. Why do boomers hate pets so much? <laughs> <laughs> they don't hate pets, Jillian. However, you know, one, one of the issues, I won't get too long-winded here, but veterinary costs have gone up. It's a profession mm -hmm. that was highly underpaid. Primarily technicians have been underpaid for years. So costs were just much lower per service years ago. And I do think some boomers are, are getting a little frustrated as costs rise to really match the quality of what we're doing. But they just, 30 years ago, they weren't used to paying what they are expected to pay now. Oh, wow. It's a little like college tuition then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, to be to be to be honest, you know, some I think some vets sometimes get frustrated with some of their older clientele, but they forget that you know I didn't I didn't pay for animals in the '80s when an exam costed eight dollars. My my dad's exam charge was eight dollars in in the late '80s. Um, wow. it's not eight dollars anymore, you know. So hmm. it, yeah, it could also be that uh, boomers are just much better with their money too, and. <laughs> well, they may have made money in the 80s right. in the market too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's all those factors, I'm sure. Right. Yeah, yeah, great. So, you know, on this, you, you realize, of course, pets is a bit of a departure for us on the Medicare for All podcast. We spent a lot of time kind of unearthing and advertising the bad deeds of human health insurance companies. And, you know, healthcare providers like hospitals, doctors get a pretty front row seat to that. So what has your experience been just with pet insurance and how does it differ from like the health insurance that you or I might have? Yeah. So it's, the differences are very clear and simple. Like it's third party. So like it doesn't work through us. Basically the client buys a policy if they'd like and they pay us in full and then we submit a diagnosis and then the insurance company just gives a, a chunk of money back to the client. So it's pretty straightforward. You know, the concept is nice to a lot of people. The practice can be confusing. A lot of people end up buying policies. They're not quite sure what they're getting for it. So yeah, lot, yeah, that's one of the problems we have. That actually reminds me a little bit of Medicare Advantage, right? Right. Could <laughs> <laughs> we just ask people for their stories about the the privatized yeah, by Medicare the way, plan? No those stories. But right. I mean, just like the idea that, like, you know, so sometimes Medicare Advantage plans are the cheapest plans that are available, right? And so people get sold on the idea yeah. of like, here's a plan or whatever. But the truth is, it actually covers nothing. And so, you know, you're basically paying a lot of money for insurance that actually isn't reducing your healthcare costs. Yeah. Right. And what would you guess, uh, what share of your clients do you think has pet insurance? Is it low or is it? Yeah, it's low. It's like less than 5%. And, and, and there's a lot of statistics to get, to get altered to 
make that sound higher. There's right. studies that are based on whether someone took a free trial or not. People that are actually paid, yes. So if you've heard like some 42% of British people get pet insurance, that isn't true at all. Oh, really? um, it's a pretty low number. It's probably under 5%. Again, a lot of it is due to due to confusion like they're not clear to understand policies in some cases so people just don't choose them because they're confused some of the insurance companies have done actually a pretty good job getting a lot more simple and straightforward with their payouts like for example like they don't cover the exam fee but they'll pay like 90 percent of diagnostics medications and and hospitalization so those are helping people make more informed decisions mm -hmm. and today is it common for them to have um Things about the pre-existing, not covering pre-existing conditions, which used to be a, a human insurance thing right. too, until the Affordable Care Act. I mean, just kind of yeah. exclu making exclusions and every single animal policy excludes pre-existing conditions, and a lot of them exclude common conditions. Like, for example, uh, a bulldog is likely to get hip dysplasia, so they'll they'll have a list of exclusions based on based on breed. Hmm. So, yeah, but every single policy has uh, a pre-existing condition, and everyone's they're a little different. I mean, some of them they'll. They'll, they'll march the records back two years to see if there's any evidence within two years of buying a policy. Some of them will go back a couple months or so. And again, that kind of creates confusion because no one really knows if my dog got a urinary tract infection two years ago, is that a one-off or is that going to be a ding for the future? And, and there's a lot of confusion with that. Yeah. So you must hear from a lot of patients who are dealing with pet insurance and uh, and who are you know kind of like weighing a lot of options yeah. Yeah. in terms of their care. How do, how do you see that kind of showing up in your work in general? Yeah, I mean, people always ask us about it. I mean, they want to know if it's something they should do. And unfortunately, a lot of veterinarians are undereducated in the policies ourselves. There's three dozen or so companies that offer them. They're all very different. And at the end of the day, a lot of it's subject to underwriting and decision-making that, that we can't predict. So we we sort of need to help direct it. But to be quite honest with you, that sometimes there's enough confusion that it's hard for veterinary staff to to know what to suggest. Yeah. yeah. I've uh, Every time I, I, I do have pet insurance for my dog and whenever I submit a claim, you know, you probably generate the the invoices that have a line for each thing, you know, each, right. the hours and the, the material is used and all that. And you can tell the insurance just kind of goes to work with a red marker. It's like yeah. every yeah. everyone is like a, you know, not allowed charge yeah. or yeah. Uh, we only reimburse up to a maximum of this amount for this service, which it's never enough to actually cover the vet bill for the most part. Yeah. So it really feels completely different to me than, than the health insurance. I have, for example, there are a couple of companies that have understood that frustration and decided to just make just simple, very straight, like percentage payouts, but they also have mm -hmm. way higher premiums too. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Get you at one end or the other, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And what about, do you see clients who, you know, do not have pet insurance or I guess whether they do or they not, who kind of struggle with um, being able to afford care for their pets? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What kind of decisions do you see people making on a regular basis based on cost of healthcare for pets? To answer that in the best way I probably can, you have a few people that seem unable to to be able to afford pretty basic things. And that sort of gets us into the whole dilemma of is having an animal a luxury or is it a right? Yeah. But yeah, also we, we certainly have people, typical really extreme things, broken legs, uh, multiple day hospitalizations. I mean, those can be multiple thousands of dollars. So there are a fair amount of people that, that weren't expecting that when they got the animal. 
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know I ended up paying, I think it was like $1,500 to, you know, remove a hairball in my cat's stomach or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and I just remember like sitting outside the vet and uh, because it was during COVID, right? When you couldn't yeah, come yeah. in with the yeah. vet or whatever. Mm -hmm. so just like sitting in the parking lot, weeping, mm -hmm. trying to like put together money to make sure that Coretta mm -hmm. could get that hairball yeah. out or whatever. But the costs are just wild. And they seem to be really variable from place to place throughout the country. Yeah, they, they are. And the veterinarians have been, in our pretty strong opinion, underpaid for years. And our technicians are, are yeah. extremely underpaid. So it's a, it's a profession with high overhead, high labor costs, high risk, high danger, high everything. And mm -hmm. the old sort of paradigm was that, well, the vets should take care of these things or they don't love animals if they don't do this or this or this. <laughs> and it's the exact opposite is true. Like, like vets commit suicide at a really high rate. Technicians quit the job at a really high rate because they grind and, and put themselves at risk. So the costs are high because the, the, the talent and the, and the time and the risk is high. It just wasn't very well conveyed in the past. And and so now we got to address the fact that clients still have to pay for that. And that's where mm -hmm. some of the, that's where this conversation goes to, you know? So it has a lot to do with like the kind of the business of veterinary care, right? Like the way it's set up that, you know, this kind of uh, the, the cost structure and everything. Yeah. Right? Like I really appreciate what you were saying about like vets uh, in particular being underpaid. I was uh, working on student debt for a long time. Yeah. And we used to say that we would do, we were going to do a vet vet campaign because we yeah. found that veterans and veterinarians actually yeah. had the highest proportions of student debt. Um, <laughs> and you were saying, you know, and how many years did you go to school to be a vet? So yeah, it's four years. I'll tell you a quick, funny story. And this gets yeah. back to student debt. Our student debts are enormous and we have to pay that. I was, when I was actually in undergrad, getting ready to go to vet school, I was at my best friend's house and his mom candidly asked me, she looked, she looked me right in the eye. She's like, so is, is vet school one semester or two semesters? <laughs> it's, eight, it's eight semesters and I have to pay for a certificate program. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people that, that see their vet prices are not appreciating the fact that we're in school for four years, not only not making any money, but paying 50 plus thousand dollars a year. That, that debt is a major part of why animals cost X amount of dollars, yeah. you know? And without having to, you know, disclose the the pay of your employees. Yeah. On average, nationally, what would a vet tech possibly potentially earn? Yeah, it's a good question. So it, it obviously depends on skill levels and experience, all that kind of stuff. But your average vet tech is probably making between fifteen and twenty four dollars an hour. And again, this is a a job where they have a degree. They put their bodies at risk. They put their emotion at risk. They deal with 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 big challenges with clients. I mean, it is a high skill, high labor, high risk job, and and you just yeah. can't people at that kind of a rate. It just isn't good enough for what they do. The emotional piece of it seems to be really pretty devastating on vets. Then, yeah, the veterinary suicide rate is four times national average. And Jesus. There's not statistics on veterinary technicians, but uh, it's it's high, and a lot of them leave the profession. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's. Mm -hmm. uh, that so one of the reasons vet care costs a fair amount is because we're finally addressing the fact that that if we don't you know take care of our our staff we're not going to be able to do anything for animals yeah yeah, yeah. and so that must be a, a tough kind of ethical dilemma if if you have pets who need care but their owners can't afford to pay it yeah. but on the other hand you have this uh understaffing you know 
right uh, challenge and underpayment yeah. payment of, uh, of workers so. if we don't have staff then we can't do anything that people want us to do like we're mm -hmm. we're useless without staff so yeah and I, I have a little story from just today i had a really nice man veteran senior then and he the first thing he told me he's like he's like i i don't have a lot of money i can't afford a lot of expensive stuff and thankfully our bills were lower than some of the specialists he'd be seeing but I'm sitting there wanting to give this guy a free exam because he was being sincere with me. But I also got a technician sitting right next to me who doesn't make enough money. We deal with that. That dilemma happens five times a day. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like any shortcomings that we have in our broader system of caring for pets are they're, they're not going to be solved on the business by business level, right? We're going to have to. It's hard to expect it to be so. And, and you guys said, you said before, like there seems to be a variation in, in charges. In, in my opinion, the variation is, is almost unacceptable. I mean, there are some mm -hmm. clinics that charge five or 10 times more for a similar service than another clinic will. My personal opinion is, is, is the corporate, the corporate nature of some clinics does add yep. to that. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, mm -hmm. that's a problem when you're paying, when, when similar services are, are that wildly differing in price. Yeah, Coda, Coda needs a leg surgery in, in the next couple of weeks. And we got two quotes from two animal hospital, well, one animal hospital and one kind of sur surgical specialist group mm -hmm. here. Yeah. And one was around 4,000 and one was around 8,000 for the yeah. same procedure. So yeah. what you're saying is absolutely true. Yeah, um, yeah. So. yeah. it's frustrating for an owner because you're, you're, you're trying not to price shop, but at the end of the day, right. you sort of have to, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't yeah. have until I got, I saw the eight thousand. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was yeah. like, I guess I have to price shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just asked my my primary vet for advice, and he suggested I, I check out this other place. You know, though, it totally makes sense though, because the the particular clinic where Ben got the eight thousand dollar estimate is the same clinic where I got a like thirteen hundred dollar estimate for taking a tooth out of Coretta. Uh, like removing a tooth, and then I moved to Texas, and uh, and I ended up paying three hundred dollars to have that. Yeah, it's a, a bit again a lot. This <laughs> is based on care too, and I'm not saying good or bad about individuals, but I mean yeah. some people perform things at way higher standard of care. You know. Oh um, yeah. So yeah, so when the standards of care are way different, then the price should be different. But a lot of times you'll have pretty similar services that do have wildly different price tags, and that's that that's when it could be a little frustrating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So thinking about a different world of how we pay for and, and I guess give access to pet health care. I mean, I had read that Sweden has some like insane percentage of pets have health insurance. Uh, it sounded like you 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 said some of the at least for England, some of those stats might be bogus. Yeah, the, the stats are not are not real. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's based on people taking free trials of of a product, so that's not real. Okay. Yeah, purchasing yeah. of insurance. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. In I, I think in Europe, it's slightly more popular than the U.S., mm -hmm. but not tremendously more so. Mm-hmm. 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 the same reason it is in the U.S. It's just it just there's there's confusion and it's a for-profit business so like they're going uh, the average client will spend more in premiums than they get back and and benefit you know mm, yeah absolutely so if we were in like an ideal world we work in medicare for all so ideal worlds are what we like to imagine uh, <laughs> if we were in an ideal world like how would you imagine veterinary care happening and being paid for well yeah, so that's that's a loaded question because it's hard. I mean, I think I I think at the end of the day, like 
we we fully are aware of the fact that even if we believe that that, that having an animal isn't a luxury and it's a if not a right at least something that we know is emotionally beneficial for people I, I there somehow has to be a way to separate costs of of someone who's needy who needs financial support based mm-hmm. on someone who isn't i mean yeah. I, I don't think in any in any world we really believe that the entirety of pet care should go to a managed system but there certainly are a lot of people that firmly believe that a lot of people get such benefit from animals including homeless including veterans who probably are low on money that there needs to be a support system for them you know to be honest you in my world i really think that that there are some charities that have done a good job and Mm -hmm. haven't been you know broadly across the country enough but it it certainly brings up the question if if some sort of a taxpayer paid thing would we be part of that And, and i don't know the exact answer to that question all i know is we have a lot of people that are homeless elderly military and we know those animals dramatically enhance their life quality. Right. And and we commonly find ourselves unable to to meet what they're looking for in veterinary care. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So pets are actually a form of health care is what you're saying. And emotional health care, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, that's great. And, uh, that's great. Again, a lot of good stories about there's the I, I don't remember details, but there's a veteran out in California that's devoted the majority of his career to basically servicing homeless people and their and their pets and and some of the stories are pretty cool to to look at you know yeah and one of the when we one of the things we were chatting about before we went live on air i was saying at least from the in the human healthcare world there's actually a law that you know prevents hospitals and physicians from turning away people yeah. with an urgent medical condition but at the same time you need to be able to pay for that yeah so there's another part of the law that pays for it it's called um oh shoot what's it called it's called um it's basically reimburses hospitals for for the care they provide that isn't reimbursed by either out of pocket or uh, they call it you know bad debt essentially the, yeah. yeah the bills they issue that they know they can't get back yeah and the the hospitals that have a lot of that especially the hospitals who are serving areas with high numbers of uninsured people they tend to get you know a larger public stream so you'd have I mean if we want to have a better if we want to so I guess you know I had kind of raised this question of morality of, of do we think it's moral to turn a pet away with yeah. an urgent medical condition? But we obviously can't disentangle that from also the financial side of it. In general, with that, there, there certainly are. I mean, we most most clinics will absolutely provide baseline care for people, even if they upfront declare they're not paying. Like there, there's mm. there's baseline care that, that is generally there's no like set rule on it, but it's sort of part of our oath that we we take care of these animals and we're the advocates for them. So. Yes, the baseline care is usually per, uh, covered, but it is it is true. Sometimes you get that dilemma where like the animal is perfectly treatable, but it may cost thousands of dollars. So do you eat that cost? Do you mm-hmm. euthanize and, you know, do a humane thing, but also know you could have treated him? But of, of course, there's no public funding that gives veterinarians any money for the good nature service. Right. Yeah, that's, yeah that's no, absolutely. So, so yeah, at this point, at this point, you know, we have this, this moral code, but we certainly don't have any financial backing for it. Right. Right. That, um, that sounds familiar too, actually. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So many Democrats who say that healthcare is a human right, right. We don't actually ever bother to try to entangle it out Mm -hmm. of disentangle it from that big industrial system. Yeah. 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 
And you had also mentioned prior to, to us going on the air that there's a common practice where some owners will be required to relinquish ownership of their pets. Yeah, and again, to- yeah, it just gets into like what the 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 vet clinics you know skew is on it. But there certainly are some situations where people will have an animal that's entirely treatable, but it costs more money than they're they're able to afford. And so a commonly done thing is the owner will sign the animal over to the, the veterinary clinic who then pro bono goes and does the work, finds a home for it. And, and maybe they have like a fundraising scheme that helps them out on it. You know, it's interesting. Like, I mean, we don't do a lot of that around here that I can't remember the last time we did that, but I got colleagues that do that. And most of them actually are very positive about that. The clients are just yeah. happy that, that the animal was kept alive. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's emotionally really disturbing to, to have to go through that kind of a scenario, you know? It's like best worst out, outcome, I guess. But, right, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that shocked me was that apparently use of GoFundMe's is also just super prevalent for pet owners, the same way it is for humans. I mean, very much so. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. very much so. So here's a question for you, Chris. Here at Healthcare Now, we believe <laughs> that people who care about other people's health are actually better people. <laughs> Could we also say that people who care about pets' health are better people? A hundred percent. I mean, I guess <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You, you look at these kids that like grow up with animals. I just think these kids are are empathetic kids. I, I think it teaches them to respect life, and they're just empathetic. Absolutely. Mm. So when we have a bunch of baby boomers who are describing pets as a luxury good and saying that <laughs> millennials shouldn't yeah. buy pets they can't afford. Yeah. Yeah, again, I mean, I'll flip the script on that a little bit, though. Here, I mean, listen, I'm an animal lover. I completely, completely want, again, the homeless and military people are two huge examples of people that I absolutely think benefit from pets. I also will see people buy the $4,000 pet store dog, like a high-risk breed, too. And then all of a sudden, I'm on the hook because I can't afford it. Something costs a couple hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a lot more sympathetic to the older lady who paid 50 bucks for the dog at the shelter I am for the 25 year old that bought a $4,000 bulldog on credit. And, and now I'm, about it. I mean, and I get That's that fair. all the time, you know, so the co- the money people are putting into just the purchase in the first place, it, it's a huge part of the problem. You know, you guys are talking about your, your rescue animals and it's a different game when you're, yeah, the, the for-profit pet industry. Yeah, is, oh, yeah. Exactly. and that, again, it's a problem. Like Veterinarians are part of this industry, and of course we're for-profit, but you know, when we see like pet stores, and, and again, breeders, they, they can charge what they want to, but uh, I can't tell you how often times someone will pay three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000 for a dog, and they can't afford a, a $400 treatment, and I, I don't quite understand why they why they bought that dog. So, so the argument that boomers may make, it's not it's not unfounded. It's just it's, <laughs> it's too broad, though. I mean, you got to right. get down yeah. to it. I mean, again, uh, pets can be luxury goods, but they are not all luxury goods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Correct. Correct. Get yourself a rescue pet and be a better person. I think that's yeah. what we're trying to talk about, right? Fair enough. Yeah. 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 This would lead us way too far astray, but also just the breeding unhealthy breeds because they look cute. It just drives me crazy. I. Well, you know, again, I, mean, it's, I love it's, those animals anyway. I mean, I one of our best friends has a bulldog who's just yeah. adorable and lovable. But why would you breed an animal that can't breathe? Yeah. You know, and I mean, and it gets back to like informed decisions. And yeah. again, when, when we look at these things where where people can't afford, it's like, are we talking about someone who 
has money and just blew it on an animal that costs too much and they should have known what they were getting into. Or are we talking about some like rescue dog that had some bad luck happen to it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with you guys. <laughs> you said it right there, you know. But yeah, I mean, but in terms of like breeding, the, I mean, I'll, I'll, let me address the breeding, the potentially unhealthy ones. There's a lot of really strong opinions on mm. should you breed bulldogs, French bulldogs, stuff like that. And there's also there's also breeds that are like guaranteed to tear their ACL. Like, I mean, just be right. pretty blunt. You, mm. you buy a mastiff, the dog is probably going to tear both ACLs in its lifetime. You know, know so is that unethical? And at the end yeah. of the day, like we try to stay out of those those ethics things because yeah. we don't think there's a black and white answer. But I do think there's a black and white answer that if you don't have money, you should not be getting those animals. You know, right. I mean, those should those should be looked at as a luxury because they cost a lot of money. You know, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't believe that a rescue dog should be looked at as a luxury at all. Yeah. Yeah. So in general, people should just be more conscious of like their obligations to the animals they adopt. Mm -hmm. right? Well, yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. it's our job to to help inform them of what the obligations are going to be. I think as a profession, we need to step up and be better at that. Not just to our clients, but but reaching out to people mm -hmm. that are prospective people. And that's really cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Jillian, this is our first foray into petacare, but I learned I learned so yeah. much that I've never thought about and. Chris, I really appreciate, especially the inside look on sort of the vet industry and awesome. like yeah. all the all the trade offs you guys have to make. Goodbye, good night, Coretta. It's great to see you as always, <laughs> and you too, Jillian. I guess. Um, yeah. um, <laughs> um, and I don't want to forget to thank our podcast team who made all this uh, possible, and especially to Lindsay, who was our researcher for this episode, but also connected us with you, Chris, um, through a, an old family connection. Yeah, good to meet you guys. So our podcast manager is Angelique Davis. As I just mentioned, our researcher for this episode was Lindsay Bache. Our show notes writer was Jerry Katz. And our audio editor was Arena Budanova. So thanks so much, everyone. And uh, get ready for the, the Pedicare for All revolution to come. <laughs> <laughs> stay safe and stay dangerous, y'all. Good night, y'all.